listening to Medicalize This podcast. I'm Lei Wing, and I'm Truman Ansani. In the realm of healthcare, there is an unspoken truth that patients who enter the hospital bring with them unique stories of their illnesses: crushing chest pain at work that refuses to go away, an itch that festers into torment, an inconsolable baby, an ankle twist on a jog from the convenience store. A car crash en route to a wedding, or even an inflamed appendix that requires emergency surgery three days before a big exam. For physicians, those stories are the first clues to the source of their patient's problem. But often, some stories aren't as straightforward as they seem, and require more than just a physical examination to make sense of what the patients are going through. Sometimes, all it takes to give patients the courage to open up about their situation. It's a simple exchange of smiles, a handshake that indicates alliance, or a reassuring hug to signal, "I understand you're in pain and confused. How can I help?" Today's guest, Dr. John Harbour, explores the humanistic aspects of medicine through art and how storytelling can offer doctors a way to make sense of their chaotic day-to-day work and connect with their patients on a personal level. Dr. Halbert is a primary care doctor at the Mill Cities Clinic in Minneapolis and a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health. He is also the creative director at the University of Minnesota's Medical School's Center for the Art of Medicine, and is a two-time Regional Emmy Award winner for his work on the Twin Cities Public Television series Art and Medicine. Our conversation with Dr. Halbert. Covers a lot of ground, including his involvement in the arts early on in his career, the unexpected twists and turns in the production of his television series *Art and Medicine* and its success, what it means to bring a narrative voice to medicine, and his visions for storytelling in medicine and his future film projects. Let's dive into it. Here's our conversation with Dr. John Harbour. Dr. Halbert, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. I'm a big fan of you and your work. I read articles about you. I watch videos of you, and I really admire what you are doing for medicine as well as the arts.、Um, I have a lot of questions about art plus medicine as well as your journey of becoming a documentary filmmaker.、Um, so we're here to talk about all of it today. But first, let's start with you and your background. I know that you are a family medicine doctor at、um, the University of Minnesota School of Medicine. So, can you tell us what got you into medicine and why family medicine specifically? Yeah, I was born、um, a long time ago, <laughs> and I was delivered by a family physician. So, I think that that is, you know, it's like literally the beginning of my life was was linked to family medicine. Now, I certainly wasn't thinking about that for a long time, but、um, now that I'm at this point in my career, I do think that that's sort of an interesting, you know, bookend and one end of my life that I was brought into this world by a family physician in a small town in somewhat rural Minnesota back in the '60s. And、um, I didn't think about medicine at all. I have no one in the family that's a doctor.、Um, but I lived in Belgium. I lived in Europe for three years when I was a young kid. My dad ran、um, a 3M plant in Newall, Minnesota, where I was born. And then, as a promotion, he got to、um, oversee about six different 3M plants in Europe. And so we lived in Brussels. I went to the International School of Brussels, surrounded by history. And、um, some kids might play cops and robbers, you know, back in the 70s. But we would often play army, 
And I wasn't crazy about that, but when I did, I would be the medic. And I actually oh. had a kid across the street paint a red cross on my little plastic you know, toy helmet, and I would bandage up my friends if they got wounded. And there was something about um, wanting to help people that became pretty clear to me, and that was maybe second, third, fourth grade. Didn't think a lot about it. And then in eighth grade, had a biology class, and between sort of human anatomy and being able to dissect a frog and look inside, and I think we had either a cat or a fetal pig, um, a light bulb went off. And I think from then on, it was at least always in the, as we say in medicine, it was part of the differential. You know, it was always in the mix of what I would be. And then um, my grandfather died after my freshman year in college. And though I had gone to college to become a physician, I got freaked out because everyone was a pre-med student. I mean, it was always a joke that at my college that, you know, 60% of the incoming freshmen indicated they were interested in going to medicine in some way, shape or form. And that just sort of scared me away from thinking about it. But my grandfather's death, watching his family physician help out, watching, you know, seeing the neurologist in the hospital, working with him, being at his bedside soon, you know, right before he died, something truly sort of lit in, internally in me. And then I committed myself for the next three years in college to you know, getting into medical school. And, uh, and I did. Um, and I, you know, it's always funny as we apply to medical school uh, and during interviews, people always say, well, tell me more than you just want to help people. And, right. and I get that. But honestly, at the, you know, at the, the base level of that it is the fact that I really wanted to help people. I wanted to be a helper. I wanted to be one of those people that could um, step up when needed. And, and I've always wanted, I've just, yeah, there's something in my DNA about that. So that's probably why medicine, though why family medicine, um, other than the fact I was brought into this world by one, mm-hmm. um, I think that that is, I, was a, I went to a liberal arts college. I was a chemistry major, but I was really a liberal arts kid. And I, I would have been an English major, maybe if I could have, or if or I, my school had offered minors, I might have been an English minor, probably would have had a minor in biology, might have had a minor in religion. Um, I just had a, I have a big appetite for lots of things. I'm a very curious person. I'm also, at my core, 100% a generalist. I'm, I'm, there's, there's no PhD quality about me. There's nothing that I want to know a ton about at a very deep level. I'd like to know something about everything in a way. And so I often tell people that family medicine is absolutely the liberal arts approach to medicine. And so if you, people like relationship-based care, you want to get to know your patients over the years. I mean, I'm, this is now my 28th year of practice. So really 31st year, including residency. And I've got some patients in my practice who are 30 years old. I mean, there's a couple of folks I see that I, I delivered as babies and they still see them, even though I'm not in a small town and I don't do hospital work and I'm not delivering babies anymore. Um, but even in my practice, I think that their age range is probably, I think, four on the young end. And I actually have a centurion. I have someone who's 100 years old in my practice. So I have a 96-year lifespan in my practice. And it's pretty cool. And, and many people I've known literally for decades. And I know all, you know, I know their stories. I know what makes them tick. So that, you know, that's, um, and when I went to medical school, I just, I don't know, I just knew from the get-go that I think family medicine was it. So I didn't, I had some wonderful mentors and people that, that helped nudge me that direction. But um, 
And I often talk about med school, med students being pluripotent stem cells. Like you kind of enter med school, you're a stem cell waiting to be acted upon by all these various forces to turn you into, to pour you differentiate. And uh, I was already kind of differentiating a little bit before I came in. And then I think I just knew 100% that when I was going through different rotations that there was nothing that was pulling me away, that I, I needed to be, wanted to be a family physician. Wow. So good. It was so great. Um, your story. So in preparation for this conversation, I did some research about you and your past. So I know that during your sophomore year of college, you went to a talk by Dr. Al Sullivan, who was back then was the dean of the students at the med school. And he was talking about the three majors that he thought was the best majors to get into medical school. Can you tell us what those majors were and what was your reaction to it? Holy cow, You, this is like the deepest cut I've ever uh, heard. This is amazing. So so they had, um, back in the day, I went with, um, I think I went with two of my friends. I was in the band, the symphonic band. I played tenor saxophone. I went with uh, a percussionist, no, two percussionists who were a year ahead of me. They were juniors, I was a sophomore. We went to the University of Minnesota to hear kind of like a pre-med, you know, kind of day. And Al Sullivan, he had gone to Suwannee, the University of the South. He spoke several languages. Um, he was from Tennessee, you know, kind of lovely lilt. He was a, a surgeon, general surgeon, but he, uh, one of his focuses was breast cancer and breast surgery. And um, at this thing, can you imagine? So he gets up there and he goes, okay, here are the three best majors to prepare you for a career in medicine. Mm-hmm. Greek, history, wow. and anthropology. And wow. you can imagine a room full of chemistry, biology, <laughs> biochem, physics. And I think if, it, if there wasn't a groan, there was some kind of a sigh. And, I, you know, it was just like, you got to be kidding me. And then he went on to say why, right? So mm-hmm. Greek is the language of medicine. It's really true. I was just talking in a conversation the other day with a patient about, you know, some anatomical part and how to kind of, you know, the supraspinatus and then we have the infraspinatus. But if you know that it's really referring to the spine, it's either above it or below it. And, you know, you just go through all the bones, all the muscles and Greek, you know, throw in Latin as well. Right. It's it's kind of this mishmash of, of Greek and Latin. And um, but I thought that was really interesting, you know, that it, like it's it's the language of medicine um, history. Um, kind of the classic line of how are we ever going to learn about, you know, where we are and where we're going if we don't understand the past. So I think mm-hmm. that was kind of the essence there. Like, and, in, and medicine is constantly evolving. I often say to patients, um, you know, we are alive at a really, you know, some terrible things are happening at this point in history and in our lives. But from a scientific standpoint, from a medical standpoint, we're alive at a pretty good time. I mean, there's like, you know, we have options to treat things in ways that we never could have imagined even 10 years ago, sometimes five years ago, certainly 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, So anyway, so history and Greek. And then the third one was anthropology. And the idea being you're entering a profession, a healing profession, you're caring for fellow human beings. How better to understand your fellow human beings than to study anthropology? So I think mm-hmm. that was his sort of the essence of his uh, recommendations. Now, now that I know Al Sullivan or, or know of him and kind of I'm older myself and, and know what he was, where he was coming from, clearly he was throwing a lot of that out there for shock value because I think he was very much a humanities kind of person and he just knew everyone in that room was a science major. Um, but I do love the fact that he that he was sort of audacious enough to throw that out there and 
And he probably has no idea that his words had that kind of an impact on, you know, a sophomore 20, 21 year old kid, you know, sitting in, in the audience that day. And here we are talking about it all these years later. <laughs> wow. Were you shocked when you, when you heard that? Oh yeah. Well, I was shocked, but I was also like, Oh, that's cool. You know, mm -hmm. because I mean, I, I really believed, I mean, I was a chemistry major out of convenience because I kind of delayed my sort of course by a year. I really didn't enter, you know, the pre-med track until my sophomore year. And a chemistry major, you know, I had to have a year of calculus, a year of physics. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, the University of Minnesota Medical School required five chemistry courses. So it was a year of inorganic, a year of organic plus analytical chemistry. And there's only two more chemistry courses got me my major. So it was like, okay, this is just out of convenience, not out of love. Um, don't ask me anything about orbitals or, you know, any, any, you know, physical chemistry or anything like that. I'd be in really hot water. Um, it was not a major of love, but it actually allowed me a lot more elective opportunity because I was able to kind of consolidate things. But, you know, there I was chemistry major by convenience, but a liberal arts kid at heart. And I, I really resonated with everything he said. Wow. No, that's amazing. I definitely think there is such a holistic side of medicine and like you said just being a doctor and everything that you do there is a lot of medicine that you do but you also as you said are a liberal arts kid and you do a lot of art literally art and medicine so what motivated you to get involved in ours and when did it start did it start in brussels what made you be like i am a liberal arts kid at heart what started it yeah gosh i, I mean you know my my dad i mean it's funny because i don't there was never an aha moment for that or an instant realization. My father was um, a kid from a really conservative upbringing, a small town outside of the Twin Cities. Um, and he got to college, he went to the University of Minnesota, was an engineering student there. And I still, to this day, he's now 86 years old. I don't know where the creative spark came in him. I mean, it's just sort of this innate thing. But as long as I can remember my dad, he's been involved in the arts. He, we have these paintings that he did. He dabbled in painting, sponge painting, um, kind of copying some modern painters at one point. Then he got into string art, total 1970s kind of thing. We still have a lot of the things that he created then. Then he became a, a leaded glass or stained glass maker. And we have, I've got two of his windows in our house right now. And uh, they're around. And then at age 75, he became a master wood turner. Mm. And it produces like almost museum quality things, kind of using his engineering brain to figure out how you turn the wood to make these beautiful works of art. And my mom was a, um, a grade school teacher, like a second grade teacher. And she, in the classic kind of 1960s, 70s way, stopped working full time once I was born and my brother was born four years later. But she, too, has this really artistic sense. So I think it's in the DNA. Um, but had anyone ever told me that, it, that at some point you could somehow combine medicine, which I think most people think is being pretty scientific, um, and art, I would have said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't get that. What do you mean? I mean, how is that possible? And then I think of the expression, the art and science of medicine. And obviously the art of medicine doesn't refer to literal art. It's not talking about painting or writing or anything like that. And I think of it as being kind of the, if, if uh, I've got this, this image of a friend of mine, he died about a year and a half ago on his 97th birthday. His name is Robert Fish. 
He was Hungarian. He was Jewish. He was on a death march in 1944-1945 from Budapest to a concentration camp in Austria and was liberated by the American troops. He carved out a career in medicine very much like this, you know, where he was very rooted in medicine. He was a pediatrician. But later in life, he became this incredible painter. And so he created a painting and it's called Inseparable and it's two hands. Imagine sort of a yin and yang, like the two hands are kind of crossing. In one hand is a scalpel blade. In the other hand is a paintbrush. And then kind of between the two is the caduceus, the symbol of medicine with the snake. And and the caduceus is actually um, like a fountain pen. And the idea, and I always think about this, that like the medicine we think of, we probably resonate more with like the scalpel blade. It's precise, it's evidence-based, it's it's data-driven, it's hard, right? It's It's got a hard edge. But to practice medicine well, you need the paintbrush, you need the softness. And I think that those are like the, the human skills, the ability to talk to people, to read the room. When you knock on that door, you know, I think of actors like curtain up and, and not that we're acting, but like a game on, you know, when I open that door and I go into an exam room with a family or a patient, I'm instantly reading the room. You know, that's uh, the EQ part, right? The emotional quotient, like, how do they look? Are they suffering? Um, what's their expression? And when I've known people for 20 years, I can register that in about, you know, less than a second. I can, I can register like that person is in pain. That person looks pale. That person doesn't look quite right. That person's pissed off. Um, that person looks really happy to see me. You know, it just, I can just read it immediately. Um, and I like to believe like that's the art of medicine. And, and how do I talk to my patients? How do we get to yes? How do we come up with a good plan together? This kind of co-creation that we're doing um, to come up with a good treatment plan um, that respects their anxiety and, and their their knowledge and their fears and and all of that. And we kind of get to a really good place. So very long answer for a very short question. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. Um, I love that answer. Um, I, it reminds me of a quote from Dr. William Osler, uh, which is medicine is the most humanistic of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. So I think it's, you know, I art. love that quote too. I, I yeah. quote that all the time. That's, that's sort of a corollary to like this visual representation of these two hands, you know, one holding a paintbrush, one holding a scalpel blade. Yeah. Um, I, I've, I've thought about that long and hard and I really think he, he captured it really beautifully. And thank you for sharing that and bringing that up. Yeah, of you know, course. I completely agree. I can say it reminded me of the quote that you guys said in art and medicine that like the, the greatest medicine and research in the world isn't, the best if it's not has it's not delivered the best care like you have to have the I mean it's like you have to understand and understand the person the patient's perspective and everything to truly understand what is best for them so you can't have this the best of the science if you don't have the best of the humanity of medicine I completely agree talk about the Hippocrates Cafe. I know it's a program that you created in 2009. So can you tell us about what it is and what your initial goals when you created this program? 
Absolutely. So I'm, um, I'm talking to both of you from my clinic that is a University of Minnesota primary care clinic. It's called the Mill City Clinic, referring to the mill industry that, that sort of gave Minneapolis its modern birth uh, right by the Mississippi River. Uh, Pillsbury, uh, gold medal flour, General Mills, all based here, uh, using the harnessing the river to to grind the wheat. So as I sit here, um, we opened this clinic in 2008, and we had the one year anniversary, of course, the next year in 2009. And I want to do something to kind of celebrate the opening of the clinic. And the clinic was meant to be about 8,000 square feet. And it was opening in 2008, right as the recession was hitting. And so the powers that be got really nervous about investing in that much space in kind of a new idea, a new concept. So we only built out about half of the clinic. So that meant that I had a giant room that was 4,000 square feet in size, sort of just sitting there. And um, so keep that in mind. That's, that's part of this story. The other part is that mm -hmm. back in the day, I used to get Time Magazine. I'd look at Newsweek Magazine, but Time Magazine in particular. And they had a book review. And there was a book that they were featuring, and it was called Socrates Cafe. And the idea was to go to coffee shops to informally have sort of a Socratic method conversation about deep philosophical issues. But the minute that I saw that book title, Socrates Cafe, I knew that I had to create something called Hippocrates Cafe. Mm -hmm. So that's the origin of the of the name and the word or the words. And the funny thing is I even went to, I got permission from my boss who was the head of family medicine at the time to work with a design team to come up with a kind of a logo uh, called mm -hmm. Hippocrates Cafe. And the crazy thing is I didn't actually know what that was or what it was gonna be. But I had this logo, and it's and it's it looks like it's a Greek key. It's kind of the architectural look. So if you look at a Greek temple, you often see that it's kind of looks like a maze, but it kind of repeats itself over and over again. But this, it's there's two holes, and, and it's actually two snakes. So it's kind of alluding to the snakes of the Caduceus, you know, wrapping around the staff. And there's also in kind of the negative space there the letter H. So it refers to Hippocrates Cafe. It clearly looks Greek. It has a medical theme because of the the um, the eyes of the snakes. It's a little bit off historically because Hippocrates was trying to get away from the idea that the gods, you know, were involved in in you know disease and in human suffering. So it's kind of mixing it a little bit, but people don't don't uh, look at it too carefully that way. Um, so then I don't know how it struck me, but I had worked with Minnesota Public Radio for a number of years. Um, I was thinking of selected shorts, a little bit of program where actors will read short stories. Of course, this is the land of Garrison Keillor and her prayer companion. Um, I, I take care of and, and did take care of actors and musicians. So I had this, like this whole thing going on. I'm across the street from the Guthrie Theater. They were doing a Christmas carol like they are now as, as I'm sitting here talking to you. It's the annual tradition at the, at the Guthrie Theater. And um, there was a, a guy there, one of the actors who I'd worked with, who is actually a colleague now. He's a Juilliard trained actor who at age 43 entered medical school and he's a family physician. But one thing led to another and I got a group of four people together, a pianist, um, a singer actor, and then two other actors put this thing together called Hippocrates Cafe. And I created a show all around the common cold and influenza. And so we did, you know, Adelaide's Lament from Guys and Dolls. I read a letter that was written by a nurse at the University of Minnesota during the 1918 influenza pandemic. And 
again, I didn't really know what it was, but I gathered about 100 people. We had some champagne to celebrate the, the one-year anniversary of the clinic opening. And I asked people for feedback. So it was about an, maybe an hour long, got some great feedback. And the very next time I did the next show, I completely, I changed how we did the show. I would welcome every, we'd start with music. I'd welcome everybody. I'd introduce the actors, the musicians. I'd introduce the topic and the first piece. I'd sit down. The actor would come up, would read the piece, followed by music. Then I would come back up, introduce the next piece, kind of set it up, sit down. The next actor would come up, read that piece. And so in the course of an hour, um, it has like a radio feel, a live radio show, um, but it's not broadcast. It's not recorded. And I did that for about 10 years. We did 118 shows, eight states, uh, worked well at conferences. I did a show, actually a couple shows at the Cleveland Clinic, a few at the Mayo Clinic, did a couple at Stanford, one at the Minnesota State Fair, um, Texas. Uh, yeah, just, I mean, uh, uh, you know, all over the place. And uh, it was absolutely a blast. And it was really fun. It was a way to share complex health information uh, using actors and musicians. And the, the tag for the show is Healthcare in Context Through Story and Song. And I did that. And the last live show we did for quite a while was on Friday, March 13th, 2020, uh, right as the pandemic was hitting. And literally, we were that was our last show. And the show was called In the Time of Plague because I knew kind of what was coming. And so we explored um, plagues in general, not, not bubonic plague in particular, but plagues in general through history and kind of setting up what we, we kind of knew was coming. Is it just like coincidence? That you just like came up with the name and then all of a sudden COVID hit and no, no, that was, that was very, that was very planned. In fact, I had an opportunity to go back to my alma mater and I taught twice. I went once when I was a third year family medicine resident and I taught a one month January course and it was called plagues and pestilence AIDS mm -hmm. and perspective. Mm -hmm. And then I went back, um, for, let's see, that was 1995. And I went back six years later in 2001. I, I shortened the title tremendously. I just called it epidemic with a capital, you know, with an exclamation point at the end. <laughs> um, but basically exploring diseases, archetypal diseases like bubonic plague, leprosy, yellow fever, cholera, Doing so, though, in, you know, in this sort of scientific but also historical context. And I think that, you know, it's, I, I've always loved uh, microbiology. I've always loved um, that because of the perhaps disproportionate influence infectious diseases have had on the shape of human history over the years. And that's always been like someone a little bit of an armchair historian that way, I suppose. So I've been looking for an opportunity to do a show, a Hippocrates Cafe show, kind of around this topic. And, you know, here we were in March and just kind of knew something was was up and uh, put that show together. Wow. How long did it normally take you to, like, plan out a whole show from, like, getting the guests and everything for, like, a Hippocrates Cafe? Yeah. Was it, like, Wait. months or? Cause, like, I imagine Sometimes that days. <laughs> Sometimes oh. days. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I it was... Um, it was insane. One year, I think it was like 2016 or 2017, I think I did 18 shows, maybe 20 shows in one year. It was oh insane. And it was way too much. And I was doing it all myself. I had no assistant. I would, I would reach out to the actors. Um, I would put the program together. I'd meet with them, go over the parts, put it together, 
figure out kind of what my narration would be. I'd meet with the musicians. We'd figure out what music was appropriate. Um, I really don't know how I did it. I was younger, <laughs> obviously. Um, and it was a passion project and it was really, you know, uh, it was, it was great to do it, but it was too much, but yeah, I could, I can put a show together in days and, and of like the 118 shows that I did, I never did one that was exactly the same. I always tweaked it a little bit, even if it was kind of like, you know, a repeat, we had kind of a fun, um, Halloween theme show we had called bite me. And, uh, it was all about things that bite and, and, you know, uh, whether it's a, uh, and, and, Hard to explain it all here, but it, but it was it was really really fun. Everything from bed bugs to leeches to snake bites uh, to the vampire myth having its origin in tuberculosis and a few other you know conditions, rabies. Um, so that was really fun. But um, but a brand new show. I mean, it can it can take a while. It can it can go so days uh, to weeks is probably the range to make a show. Talk about R plus medicine. So when COVID hit, um, Hippocrates Cafe have to, you know, be shut down. And but you still found a way to bring um, the art performance to even more people. Um, you create R plus medicine, and it was it, it's a four part series. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the final part of the series was just released this year in October. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. And second, Chiming and I, um, and oh, as well as those who care about R plus medicine, um, would love to know everything about the backstory of R plus medicine and your role in the series. So I think it's a good moment to, you know, talk about how you came up with the ideas for each episode and talk about the production process in general. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, so we, um, so it's a perfect segue out of what happened. So Hippocrates Cafe as a live show came to a crashing halt on that Friday in March of 2020. And pretty quickly, um, I mean, about this time, a little bit before that, the Dean of our medical school and uh, a colleague that I knew quite well, who was the um, director of all our research efforts, had approached me about trying to create some kind of a center for the medical school to be sort of a, a center for arts and medicine and humanities. And so we created the center for the art of medicine, but that was like, the timing couldn't have been worse because we had just sort of created it at a really loose structure and then the pandemic hit. But the Dean was really concerned as you know everyone was about the well-being of all of us but in his case, he was in particular, you know, very concerned about the, the well-being of learners and frontline workers in particular. Mm -hmm. So they asked me, you know, is there anything we could do, anything we, way we can kind of harness the arts to buoy the spirits of frontline people? And I had done one of my live Hippocrates Cafe shows, and I've, I kind of think about the name of it. I think it was um, a celebration of life. It was for a... Uh, group at a church in Minneapolis that was exploring end of life issues. And one person came up to me at the end of that show and said, 
have you ever thought about like like filming one of these shows like really filming it and have it done well because it just like there were not a ton of people in the audience but it was a really high value really powerful show and i said well yes but i don't have the infrastructure or the time to even be thinking about that but thank you but i took that away and, th and this person who said that it was actually a big donor to the medical school and Anyway, I reached out to the dean. I said, hey, I think I got an idea. Um, can I reach out to a colleague of mine at uh, Twin Cities Public Television? So it's TPT PBS. And it turns out she was a college classmate of mine, and she's the president and CEO. And I said, hey, I've got this crazy idea. Uh, what do you think about turning one of these Hippocrates Cafe shows into a, a televised show? And she said, sounds great. Let me put you in touch with some people. Of course, we're all meeting on Zoom. I had the Zoom meeting. And that was probably in May. And by the end of June, I think we had filmed our first show pretty much, you know, I mean, I never met, you know, I mean, I knew, I knew the people and I kind of, we pieced this one together and we actually did call that first show Hippocrates Cafe reflections on the pandemic. And I'll never forget this. Like we we're getting a little nervous about like, well, what if we don't get the show out there before the pandemic ends? You know, and thinking like now, like that—that that was not a problem. We had we had three years to 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 take our to pull that off. Um, but anyway, it had a, it had a little bit of a sense of urgency, and and in it we were able to reflect a lot of what was happening. We reflect on the fact that um, our Asian friends and colleagues were being targeted by some people because it seemed to originate in China, um, and so we really addressed that. We opened right away with with uh, a friend of ours. Um, Gao Hong playing the pipa, a Chinese traditional instrument, as a way of acknowledging that. And then um, a South Korean poet to write, wrote a poem about um, Asian hate. And then we had um, a um, Hmong woman talk about what the pandemic was doing with her children. And the thing that was so incredibly revelatory, I mean, a few things. One is like, how the heck did we pull it off as fast yeah. as we did? And that show, I, I will probably be the most proud of that. I think that was maybe the most beautiful artistic thing I've ever worked on. And it was really me and a producer that they assigned me to at Twin Cities Public Television, Brittany Shrimpton, who just has this incredible gift of working with people, shooting the, the scenes beautifully, um, editing them beautifully. And um, that show, by the way, went on to win a regional Emmy Award, a Upper Midwest Regional Emmy, which I'm really proud of. And it got picked up for national distribution. And, and the success of that show then kind of greenlit this idea of, like, let's do three more. And before I get to those, um, just to say that, that you know, the, the really astonishing revelatory thing was this. When I did the live shows... I could have maybe five people on stage, maybe six. So it'd be me as the host, two actors and two musicians, maybe a third musician who is like an actor singer. Um, but there's only so much diversity that I can put on stage when there's five or six people. This show, I think if we looked at all of the people who made an appearance in one way, shape or form, I think we had like 60 people and over half were folks of color, you know, so we were able to diversify the audience, you know, the, the, the participants in such a, a really amazing way. And that was really important for us. And we have, you know, there's a Native American piece, there's um, uh, African American storyteller, uh, um, the list goes on of all the folks that we were able to kind of bring to the, to, to the show. And that was, um, I think one of the things I'm most proud of was just the, the, the 
uh, ability to have more people um, in the show and on screen. Um, so when we came up with the, where we got the green light to produce more, and we weren't really thinking at first that this would be like a mini series or a series, but mm-hmm. that's kind of what it turned into. Um, one little side note, um, Hippocrates Cafe, as much as I love that, um, in a TV guide, it's really hard to know what that is um, because people think it's a restaurant or that that's a coffee shop and they're not quite sure what they're about to watch. So they came up with what looks on paper like art plus medicine, but we say art and medicine. Um, so the series is art and medicine and that became the series title. And we even repackaged that first show. So now it's all consistent and it's all part of that series. But it was very clear being in Minneapolis where George Floyd was murdered that something about race just simply had to be the next show. So that was an easy, that was a no question, this is the next show we're going to do. So we did um, uh, Art and Medicine, Speaking of Race, second Mm -hmm. show. Um, That also went on to get a regional Emmy Award. We got that a a year ago in October. Then the third show we wanted to do on aging. And part of that was because my boss is a geriatrician and he had been past president of the American Geriatric Society. there's no secret that most of the people who watch public television are folks who are of a certain age. And so having one on aging made a ton of sense. Um, that one's particularly um, fun for me because my parents got to be in the montage section of the show. So both of my parents were in there. Um, and then the third show, which was hands down the most difficult thing I've ever worked on as far as an artistic piece was on disability and um, for all kinds of reasons. And, and, Folks that I worked with um, who themselves are people of color will say that where we're at with disability and how we talk about it and how we engage is about 20 years ago. It's like where we are, you know, we've made some progress with with conversations around race. We still have a long way to go, but like conversations on disability are still maybe like 20 years from not where they where they should be. And um and that's the first show that I'm not a co-host in. That was a very conscious decision on my part to sort of step back, be more behind the camera than being in front of it. And I really um, have enjoyed that more of a, like a production role or a producer role. And I have a feeling that might be kind of where my my passion lies going into the future a bit more. Um, but the first, well, all four now have been picked up for national distribution through American public television. The Speaking of race show is fun because I have the stats on that. That was shown in 43 of the 50 states. It was shown in 19 of the top 20 TV markets. We created some educational content around that that's been used in junior highs and high schools. And I think it's over like 14 states now. Um, and it's in the, the great thing is, you know, next to the top 20 TV markets, but it was shown in Huntsville, Alabama, and, you know, um, Little Rock, Arkansas, and Pensacola, Florida. And I just love the fact that that show is was seen all over the country and that that um you know it's we're talking about medicine um, i'm a physician i see patients one-to-one i think of that as sort of as micro medicine you know it's just it's how i do things it's one-on-one but i love the ability to kind of put on a different hat and to reach more people and that has kind of a public health quality to it i think a lot of us have that dual not just aspiration but almost dual duty to to do something you know uh, that's patient by patient but then what can we do that can influence you know more people and, and broader audiences and certainly creating some content like that is a way that we can do that absolutely agree just first of all just 
amazing show. I'm so glad it's getting national distribution national distribution because I feel like there's so many amazing stories that were told through like healthy aging, which was an aspect of aging that you often don't get to hear or get to see, but also just through every single person's story, through their poetry, through their art of seeing all these different perspectives that were beautifully told and immaculate. Did you feel that like just due to the pandemic and everything, like how hard was it to get all these artists to do these performances and do the like interviews and everything? Was it really difficult? Was it people uh, initially, like when you had your first episode, they were like unsure of everything or was it more so like very easy or just even like people speaking out like about their feelings with like all the Asian American hate and discrimination? Like how was the process of getting everyone to to have these interviews and performances. What was yeah. What was so each show, yeah, each show had its challenges. Um, the first show is just because we, frankly, and we were the, the, that show. You see us wearing cloth masks because that was still kind of acceptable at that time. Um, we, you know, my co-host and I are standing roughly six feet apart, so this kind of awkward, you know, on the stage there. Um, when they filmed all of the different scenes, it was basically the producer, a sound engineer, and the photographer. That was it. So it was like the smallest possible number of people present. We did a virtual string quartet. We didn't even have the quartet together. They were like in different locations and then kind of syncing it together. So it looked like they were playing as one, which which ultimately they were. Um, because I, I think every aspect of the economy was hit hard in the pandemic, especially those first three, four, five months. But I think no segment of the of the economy was hit harder than the performing arts because and that went on longer. I mean, restaurants figured out ways to serve people outside or to have curbside pickup. Um, people still used, you know, planes to some extent to travel, but theaters were shut down. I mean, right. all actors were basically instantly unemployed. Um, and so um, when we were offering, and we we paid everyone that you see that's on screen is offered um, uh, some money, and and not that it would take money to make that happen, but in that first show especially, those were all my friends basically that that almost you know so many were, it was just a great way to reach out to people I'd worked with in the performing arts community, throw them some kind of help, but they also had all been in Hippocrates Cafe shows and they kind of knew the power of the live shows and the idea that we were turning into a, a televised one was really fun. Um, so then like with the the next show about race, those are all people in healthcare. We decided to take a very focused look at people who are like physicians of color. And there's at least one medical student in there. There are a couple residents. Most of them are practicing physicians. Um, very happy to participate. But some of them told some really difficult stories. So I think emotionally that was really hard uh, for a couple of them and one in particular I can think of. Then with the aging show, not that difficult to find the people, um, pretty easy. The disability show was much, much more challenging. Uh, people we reached out to, a couple of people just ultimately decided not to participate. Um, hard to get a hold of a few folks because if you are you have a particular you know strong disability, um, it's just harder to, you know, communicate to get to the, the, you know, you don't just pick up the phone if someone's deaf or, you, you know, it's just, it's, it's just tricky. Um, and then there were, there were layers there. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, people, um, Twin Cities Public Television, the University of Minnesota Medical School, we've got a pretty strong foundational, uh, reputational places that you can trust. 
And, um, and even that being said, I mean, my gosh, even in production, post-production, the editing process, the, there were times it was really tricky to navigate things just because we're trying to do it so right. And it's, once it's done, it's done, it's locked in. Um, I can pivot if I'm doing something live a little bit and, and read the room and, and change what I'm going to say. But once it's out there, you can't really change it. So we really had to do our homework and, and really um, work at that in a very, you know, uh, intentional way. Um, but thankfully, people were really, really anxious to work with us. Wow. I'm, I'm curious. So how, how did you balance all of that with your practice and a lot of, you know, being in charge of the production of such a, you know, gorgeous show. And I'm pretty sure that, uh, you know, there are tons of tons of, you have to like navigate to pull together the shows and, you know, so yeah. how did you be able, like, how will you be able to balance, um, taking care of patient and then directing the show, the series? Even your, yeah. Even so, your personal life and balancing yeah. all of to be very clear, um, I my work was mostly upfront, you know, sort of helping to put things together. And so the first show, it was really me and Brittany, and and that's probably why that show will just always, always loom so large in my sort of uh, occupy such a huge place in my heart. I think is just because it was such a labor of love. The fact we pulled it off at the height of the pandemic, we didn't have any immunizations, we didn't know what was going on. Um, also, you know, I just wasn't as busy in clinic at that time. You know, we didn't really kind of ramp up until June, July of that summer, getting kind of back to normal. But I didn't have a lot of other things on my plate because we weren't meeting in person and trying to figure out how do we navigate this new world of Zooms and Teams meetings and all of that. So, but we realized very quickly with the next three shows, we had a curatorial team to help put the pieces together so and that was really helpful essential and and really um informative then once the show gets going i mean Brittany and her team are amazing i mean it's just they kind of quietly go about the business we're not necessarily on set i did go to the set on the aging show to take some photographs as it kind of wrapped and you know wanted to be there to thank everybody um as the production wrapped um, but yeah, so that part isn't, it wasn't that difficult to navigate. You know, I'm in clinic physically. I'm here in clinic five days a week. Mm -hmm. I see patients in clinic Monday through Thursday, mm. but half day chunks. The rest of my time is, you know, I do, a, I mean, I do so much with Epic and, and, you know, at, even at home, sadly, but cause that just never, it just never, ever stops. Um, so that's, that's a constant. And I have some administrative duties and other things that I do. So I, I've been very lucky. I've got a very balanced life. It can be a little busy at times, a little crazy at times. But by and large, I, at this point in my career, it's been nicely balanced. It feels, it feels really good. But I just want to be very clear that, I mean, you um, very kindly introduced me as a filmmaker. I'm not sure I can quite use that term myself. I'm probably more of a producer. Um, I, I want to have credit go where credit is due. And I totally have, I mean, I, this is an adult fantasy of mine is to work on films to, to sort of help make these things happen. It's like, you know, pinch myself that I've had an opportunity to do so. But I'm also careful to realize that I'm probably much more 
in the kind of film nomenclature, more of a producer mm. uh, than the actual filmmaker. Brittany Shrimpton is absolutely hands down the genius behind all four of the shows. And, and that's been one of the great gifts of my life is to be able to work with her because she's an incredible talent. So I have a quote um, from Kevin Kling, who was featured in, I think, all of the episodes of Arpolis Medicine. And um, one of the quotes that he said that stood out to me um, was, we often use art as a language or a conduit to our deeper selves. Art also provides a landscape where we can investigate and challenge our personal and societal beliefs. I don't know. There's something about watching the series and it feels so intimate to me, even though I was watching the series through a screen, I can picture myself watching the performance like in person or live. So I, I'm pretty sure that um, others, other people also feel the same way. So I, 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 I want to ask you, um, what is it about a series that you think resonated with people so much? Yeah, I mean, so... I'll start for a second with just one of the shows, and that's the disability show. I think it would be impossible for anybody to watch that show and not come away and be profoundly moved and to realize, like, I never thought that a person who has sort of an ADHD mindset would read poetry that way or see poetry in their mind's eye that way or that you can make music that way when you've been paralyzed. Um, just, I mean, the list goes on. It's just, it's, just, it's just incredible. So I think that there's something intrinsic about working with creative people, and in that show in particular, every one of those folks was an artist, that is very disarming. Mm -hmm. These are not actors. They're real people. They're telling their really profound thoughts. Um, the... Kevin was scripted. He's a storyteller. He's a professional storyteller. Those words, if he had said those words off the top of his head, which he, I know is capable of doing, but that would make me so insanely jealous. I know he, you know, he's a very, he's a good wordsmith and he kind of crafted those words. But when you hear the people, I mean, they're being interviewed. Those are spontaneous thoughts. And of course it's edited, but they're telling you heartfelt thoughts and, and sharing things and they're, they're getting a prompt and yeah, there could be retakes and things like that, but it's all very, very natural. And I think that there's something about the show and the series that allows that, that draws us in. In fact, when um, Dr. Salamab and I did this speaking of race show, we sort of sort of talk about that in the opening, like this is, this is hard, but mm -hmm. we encourage, we invite you in, we invite you to sit down and, and listen to our words, let them kind of wash over you and 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 then think about it and let it let it kind of percolate so i think that what we try to do with this series which frankly i think is unlike anything else on television it's you know talking about medical topics which of course are humanistic topics right. you know the pandemic race mm -hmm. aging disability these are big broad topics um and we and you probably can tell too with the shows like there's nothing in there about other than the first show of course we wanted people to get vaccinated when vaccines came out we wanted them to be respectful and to wear masks and do what we could to try and mitigate the effect of the early days of the pandemic but other than that broad sort of admonition there's nothing in the shows that is you know um 
dated in the sense of like, if we give medical advice, at some point that medical advice is probably going to be dated and, and no longer applicable. But the human experience, the, the telling of those stories, that's timeless. And I really think that that's a big part of that. You know, it's just the timelessness, the authenticity, the compassion that comes through, the empathy, all of that. No, I, I completely agree. Something that art medicine does bring is just that compassion and that intimacy and it being so informative, hence it being nationally recognized. Have you mm. feel that that's changed how your patients have interacted you, uh, how your patients have interacted with you in the clinic or have you interacted with your patients? So here's a hard reality. I would bet that the vast majority of my patients have no idea that I was involved in this. <laughs> it's, um, it's public television. It's, um, we do have a monitor in the lobby and we put, you know, we have a couple of the, the shows kind of out there for people to do it. You have to hit the QR code and watch, but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, it, so it hasn't changed anything in the sense of it's, it's, uh, John has been their family physician for a long time. I mean, many of my patients know that I've, I've had some leadership positions, you know, in various capacities with you. They know that I was on Minnesota Public Radio for about 18 years. There was a time when I was working with the Minnesota Twins. So, I mean, like people have pieced together things. And like, I think everyone knows this a little bit different aspect of me, um, but not the whole story because it's it's not something we talk about. And, uh, you know, it's it's so there too. Like they, they most people do not know um, that I was involved in these shows. So it, that's a, it's a humbling kind of lovely mm -hmm. thing to be involved with um and uh i like it that way yeah you're like batman like zero <laughs> like wow you know. that's i never thought of it that way but thank you i though i i don't think yeah there's no um what's his name uh wayne uh wayne. bruce wayne no bruce um, wayne. yeah Indeed, bruce wayne um yeah but thank you <laughs> I never thought of it that way um, let's talk about the future. So what are your future plans for R plus medicine? Are you going to, uh, do more series like that? Or you think it's just like where it ends or should, should end? So great question. Um, I've given this a lot of thought. I think anytime you kind of dip your toes into these waters, how can you not be sort of like taken by it a little bit? Like, man, this is kind of fun. Um, and I mean, I should, Going way back, when I my first practice when I was done with residency was in downtown Minneapolis on the Nicollet Mall, and one thing led to another. But within the first two years, I was um, kind of the set physician for a lot of the movies that were being shot here in town. So I've been a set physician. I would I got called to the Fleetwood Mac concert backstage to help out because my office is right downtown. I could walk over to the Target Center. I've had a really really fun career and and bringing all these different elements together so i think that because i was sort of you know tasted film work even back then in the mid 1990s that has always been sort of this secret you know if i could do one thing i would love to make a movie or be involved what the show you know so the live show i did it for 10 years it was great it's turned into something else 
Um, this series is probably it. I mean, as, as far as that goes, I don't think, I don't know that we're going to continue doing art and medicine series. They're expensive. Um, we've got to come up with the money either from philanthropy or from a grant or the state legacy fund that we have um, that's authorized with the legislature in Minnesota. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a lot. So one of the things I've done is I've taken Hippocrates Cafe, since I'm doing very few live shows anymore, and I'm turning it into something called Hippocrates Cafe Productions. And what I hope that will be is maybe the world's first film production company based in a medical school. So that's kind of what I'm working on. So I just had a meeting today with a local filmmaker who um, he has a film on HBO. He was one of two um, DPs. He was two um, directors of photography and it's called you were my first boyfriend and it's being some buzz. It premiered at South by Southwest. So I've actually engaged him to be the director of a documentary short that we're going to do about direct care workers. So people who like are employed by a family to take care of somebody, generally an older person, often with dementia. And we got a grant from um, HRSA, um, a federal grant, but it's also through a local geriatrics program we've got here to sponsor that. So that is my true first foray into like being a producer, an executive producer, coming up with the money. Um, I would probably have two titles. I'd probably be executive producer and producer because I'm going to kind of help with the, the content creation of it. Um, and that's kind of a direction I'm going in. Um, I've also written a screenplay. I want it to be an animation. It's, um, uh, it's, it's a story about a, a woman with leprosy in the Middle Ages, I found a document from England from the 1300s, which describes how a priest would basically tell somebody that they are no longer part of society. And it goes through the whole ritual of how they would sort of expel some from society. Um, but I, but it, it's in such a way that it's going to end where it becomes an instantly modern. And it's like, you know, who are the lepers of society today? Not referring to literal leprosy or Hansen's disease, as it's known, but kind of who have become like societal lepers and um, kind of making that that connection and making that leap. Um, because in so many ways, people are still kind of ostracized from mainstream society and they're on their own. And I want to make that really, really clear. So that's in the offing. I've got to come up with the funding for that. But yeah, one film in production, in pre-production, I should say, um, would be a documentary short. And one of my fantasies is I would love to go to a film festival uh, with a film and be able to be there and do a little Q&A after it's, uh, after it's been shown. So yeah. We'll see where that goes. But that's that's kind of uh, where things are. Hippocrates Cafe Productions. And that is a little bit of my um, strategic sort of phased retirement plan someday is that I would love to be able to kind of slide over more toward that. And the idea of working with people and helping to come up with the financing to make their dreams come true is very appealing to me. That's really, really, really exciting. And I will definitely be one of the first to see your films and all the productions that you do and go to the Thank festival. You. Thank you. So do you want to end this to me? The yes, I can. I can. Well, first of all, just thank you so much for indulging your time to speak to us. I just want to end off with a question for which, what advice would you give to any healthcare profession professionals or any person who's interested in integrating creativity into their practice but doesn't know where to start or where to begin. What would be some advice that you would give? And also, not even just to healthcare professionals, but just to 
people in general who's looking to connect to arts or looking for a way in which they want to express the creativity that they have and themselves. Yeah, so I think if somebody is thinking about going to the health professions, I'll start with that, or they're in the health professions, um, to get into that line of work, I think already people are are creative on some level and have been. You know, there's always this story about how everyone in third grade is an artist, and by the time you get to eighth grade, you know, no one's an artist. You know, like, like that gets kind of beat out of us in some way. Like, why did that happen? It was like so much a part of being a, a, a kid and and being fun and, and having fun and being creative and drawing and just just being free with that. I I I would encourage people to. Yeah, life changes. We have to pivot. We have to focus on studies or we have to, you know, devote time to whatever that pursuit may be. But I I don't think it has to be at the expense of the inherent creativity that one has. Um, I mean, there's so many examples, but at Harvard, they have the Longwood Symphony. And so all these like Harvard medical students and residents and faculty are really accomplished orchestral musicians. Well, they keep playing. Like, yes, exactly. Like, keep playing. Don't lose that. When I was a medical student, I know I probably should have studied even more than I did. And I certainly studied a lot. But um, I also made it a point to go see movies. I mean, I I saw uh, one of the most powerful films I've ever seen, uh, Do the Right Thing. I saw that when that premiered, Spike Lee's film. And, like, you know, the impact that had on me and has on me to this day. I think that there is so that you can be passive, you can be consuming uh, artistic content and creativity, whether you're a viewer of an art museum or looking at photography or reading a book or reading poetry, but you can also be a, a creator. And gosh, I mean, these days it's so easy to be a content creator. That's creativity. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think, and then I'm a huge, huge fan of listening to your inner voice, listening to, to, you know, possibilities. Um, one of my favorite book titles is the art of possibility. And I've always taken that to heart. I'm not a, I'm not a schmoozer. I don't do things to suck up to people, but I am true to myself and I am curious and I try and be kind. And, you know, I think that if you do those things and are those things that, sometimes things happen, you know, opportunity comes our way when we not least expect it, but you just have to be kind of open to those things and not be afraid to, you know, for me to reach out to someone at TPT and say, Hey, I got this crazy idea. Um, what do you think we make a, you know, a TV show about this? And, you know, the opportunity was right. And, and it's turned into this incredible partnership. So it's saying all that. I also feel like, you know, I want to, star in a hollywood film but i'm a medical student like that's probably not going to happen so i think that you 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 know you can try too hard you can try some avenue that just frankly isn't going to make sense you want to kind of set your expectations properly but being authentic being who you are you know being curious being creative there's just no way to know where that might go but i think it's going to have a really interesting output, you know, uh, interesting potential, amazing potential. Wow. So there you go. Our conversation with Dr. John Howard. Thank you so much for coming to our podcast. Thank you so much. It was my great pleasure to be with both of you. Thanks for listening. This episode of Medicalize This was produced by me, Lei Nguyen. 
and Jermaine Ansani. Special thanks to Kayla Wong, our editor-in-chief, for giving this episode the best shape possible. Our original theme music and additional music come from Bulldog Sessions. If you enjoy the show, please help others find us by telling your friends about us, posting our episodes on social media, or leaving us a review and rating on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Le. See you next time.